you would take out the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to continue our study through the Gospel of Mark today by looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. And as you turn there, I'll remind you that we have a congregational meeting uh, at 5 today. And that, a lot of churches call those things business meetings. We call it a congregational meeting. If we can figure out a better name for it, we would even go for that because uh, this isn't a classic business meeting. This is where we as a congregation uh, seek the will of the Lord together. And we hear about how God is using our church this past year and plans for the future. Uh, We do go over things like finances and let, let folks ask questions about details of how our church is functioning But ultimately, this is about us as a church bowing before God and saying, you, uh, you tell us what to do. We want to follow your will and your lead. Uh, And so we'll do that today at five. And if you are a guest, we uh, you're invited. Uh, We're not trying to hide anything. And uh, we do believe if you're here, you will see uh, the fruit of the spirit in the way that we talk, in the way that we interact with what's going on in the life of our church. So that's today at 5 p.m. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect, holy word. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. Hear the word of Christ. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With whom I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Oh God, I pray today that we would see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ as we open up our Bibles, your very word that is about Christ, by your spirit, which you have given us to make us more like Christ. God, there is something cosmic, there is something galactic that is happening in these moments as your body feasts on your word. May we not miss it. May we realize heaven and hell is at stake in our souls surrendering to the Savior. May we see Him as our Prince of Peace. And God, before we leave today, would we hear the words of the Father. You are my Son. And in You I am well pleased. Not just to Jesus, but to us. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. May be seated. One of the strangest evenings of my life happened one Wednesday night after church. I was leaving youth group and my sweet Southern Baptist godly grandmother approached me and said, I want to take you and your friends tonight to a haunted house. And this is really odd request from her. I even believe she thought those things were sinful and wicked and of the devil And all of a sudden, she's wanting to take me and my friends from church to this haunted house. And we ended up in the 
classic scene on the outskirts of town around some old broken down barn. You pull up and you hear, you know, screeches and howls and music playing and you, you smell the gas from generators and you hear chainsaws roaring in the background and you pull up to these places. And, and just to be honest with you, this is the first and last time I ever went to a haunted house. I, I hate these sort of things. This was sheer misery for me. And as we moved through the haunted house, I, I did so with my eyes closed. I was holding on to my friend in front of me, uh, his shirt, not just holding on to his shirt, which was probably ruined by the end. With my eyes closed, I didn't want to see anything around me. And I moved through this haunted house. And then you, you get to the end, and it's the classic chainsaw guy, the guy with the mask, and, and he's roaring the chainsaw trying to scare you. And actually, there were two of them at this haunted house. And we get to the end, and I'm still there with my, my eyes closed, waiting for the sounds to go away, waiting to, till we can finally go back to the parking lot. This is finally over. If I can endure these last minutes of the chainsaw roaring, I can get to the parking lot. And so things died down and I started walking down a path through a field that, that I thought led to my grandmother's car. She was waiting in the parking lot for us. And I realized that one of the chainsaw guys, men, whatever they're called, was still following me. And I realized that I was all alone down this path leading to the parking lot. My friends were nowhere to be found. And the, the chainsaw guy, he's roaring the chainsaw and he's coming. And I realize no one else is around but me. So he's coming at me with a chainsaw. So I begin to walk fast, thinking this is going to be over soon. Surely there are boundaries to this haunted house. He can't follow me home. I walk. He's still coming. I begin to run. He starts running. I begin to sprint to the, to the parking lot where my grandmother is parked in her little, I remember it so vividly, gray Le Mans. And I'm going to, I'm going to get to her car and I'm going to get in. And, and I finally reach the car and I put my hand on the car and I, I reach for the doorknob and I realize she has locked the door and the chainsaw guy is still coming. And so I just start running around her car in the parking lot and this chainsaw guy, I don't have a better word for the chainsaw guy. Maybe you can tell me later. It's chasing me around her car. And my grandmother, if you, I could hear her high-pitched laugh through the window. She is hitting the dashboard, laughing her head off at me. And I run and I run around her car and I finally fall down in the gravel. And the guy gets over the top of me with the chainsaw. It, it, he would be fired and sued if this happened today. And he puts the chainsaw down to my face and then flips his mask off. And it, it was actually my cousin. And my grandmother and my cousin and all my friends from church had set me up for that very moment. And I, I never, never forgave them. I didn't sleep for several weeks. Um, and, and there were moments during that scene where I was thinking... This is real. Like this is a haunted house gone bad. We're going to be on the news. I'm going to die. It, this is horrible. And just running for my life. 
I, I was imagining God has surely punished us for going to this haunted house after church. This is the worst thing we could have ever done after church on a Wednesday night. And looking back, you realize there was really nothing to be scared of. The reality is many of us are living our life that way. We're, we're trying to pretend we're in a haunted house. And we believe faith is that we're going to get to the end of this story. And God's going to say, gotcha. There was really nothing to be scared of. That, that really wasn't real. There were, you shouldn't have been that scared. And, and that's the way we even read our Bibles. It's like this fairy tale story. And it's God trying to cause us to, to play make-believe in the real world. And yet, the reality is, John warned us last week that this is real. And there is a real judgment that is coming that will flood the earth as the waters cover the sea. Just like in Genesis 9, when God flooded the earth with water, there is a day coming where he will flood the earth with fire and it's real and it's scary and it's not make believe. And John told us if we if we don't confess our sins, John out by the Jordan, if you don't in baptism say I deserve to be plunged under because I'm a sinner and I need to be raised up. If you don't confess your sin and turn from your sin to the king who is actually the one coming to judge, you will be washed away in this fire of judgment. And it's a real thing. It's not make-believe. But what John begins to show us today in verse 9 is while this judgment is real, it's scary, it's not make-believe, your Savior is real. Jesus isn't a make-believe Savior. And here in Mark uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, we see God Himself declaring to us the gospel. Father, Spirit, Son, they declare to us, all three members of the Trinity declare to us who Jesus is so that we would know the gospel is true in this very real and scary world. Notice verse 9, we see the good news from the Savior. Notice, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Now this is that while John is out baptizing by the Jordan River, here comes Jesus, the Savior King. But notice Mark points out he is from Nazareth of Galilee. This would have been outskirts of town, um, sort of backwoods folks from a place called Galilee. Mark wants us to realize Jesus is a real person from a real place. And notice he comes and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now remember, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. And it is a baptism of judgment. He is warning the people of a judgment to come. And you are baptized to say you deserve that judgment. Now, if what's going on with Jesus here is just sort of a sentimental moment, then that's not a big deal. And we so often talk about Jesus' baptism that way. We're talking to folks about baptism, and we really don't know why Jesus was baptized. So we say, Jesus was baptized, so you should be baptized. Jesus is just a good example here. But, but if, 
if John's baptism is a baptism of judgment, things get really awkward with Jesus here. This is weird. And it's the reason John stopped Jesus. He says, oh, what are you doing here? You see, John had been telling the people, that guy's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sins of the world. And now he's coming to be baptized saying he deserves judgment? Why is he doing this? John stops him and says, shh, do you realize who I've been telling these people you are? This would be like in church today, us taking prayer requests and your husband standing up and saying, I just need to confess before everyone I'm guilty of lust. You'd say, sit down. Be telling the church folks that. We'll talk about that when we get home. Glad you told me now. Or your wife standing up and saying, I need to confess of sin. I've been stealing my husband's credit card and I've been buying all kinds. You would say, sit down, honey. Probably wouldn't say, honey. You'd say, sit down. You're not confessing that in front of people at church. And we've all been in those awkward moments, maybe. Hopefully not, but many of us have. Where a leader we respect and admire, maybe even a pastor gets up the church meeting and confesses of some heinous sin. And there's that awkward feeling in our gut where we just want to crawl through the floor. We just don't want to be here. And that's exactly the way John felt when Jesus came to be baptized. What are you doing here? You do not deserve judgment. Why are you confessing sin in a pool of judgment here? Why would you come do this? And Jesus told him... Uh, in Matthew, he says, I've come to complete all righteousness. And what Jesus is doing here is he's identifying with his people. He's identifying them with them to the point he identifies with them their sin. And so he marches down to the river to associate with sinners. Yes, he's confessing sin, but he's not confessing his own sin. He's confessing your sin. He is saying you deserve to be immersed in wrath but I will stand in the wrath for you. I will be plunged under for my people as we march as a new people through the Jordan back into the land as a new people. I will face the punishment they deserve so they can be my people. I will complete their righteousness. And we see here the good news from the Savior is this. If He would identify with you in your sin, you are free to confess your sin. That's the only way you can have Him as your Savior is if you confess, yes, I'm a sinner and I deserve judgment. The judgment he's picturing here is a judgment I deserve. That's what Jesus is calling us to in these moments. And here's a reality. As Jesus is not just plunged underwater and suffocated underwater, on the cross he is plunged under the fire of God's wrath and suffocated to death. Jesus has already said how bad your sin is. He's seen the brunt of your wickedness even more than you have. He's seen it up close. He tasted it. He endured being forsaken and banished by the Father for you. He knows your deepest, darkest secret, and He has paid the price for it already. And so there's nothing today that you could confess before Jesus that's going to shock Him. He died for it. Jesus confessed in a pool of God's wrath 
I'm the fornicator. I'm the adulterer. I'm the liar. I'm the greedy, selfish, self-righteous rebel that deserves to be wiped out by God's wrath. And the only question from Jesus to you today is why won't you admit it? Why won't you confess your sin before him? John warns, if you will not confess your sin and receive his judgment for your sin, you will be wiped out. And that's good news. You have a savior who's been judged for you. He's identified with your sin. He's not shocked by it. But notice the text continues. We hear from the savior, the son, and now we hear from the spirit. Verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, there's a picture here of resurrection. Remember, Mark uses language that is almost violent. It's jolting. He's jerked up out of the water. This is a resurrection-like moment. The picture of the Exodus, the Red Sea, is jerked apart. And Jesus comes up out of the water. And notice, immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And notice how that reads. He came up out of the water... Immediately the sky is torn. And then, like a dove, the Spirit comes down and there's peace. And there's a picture here. After the fire of judgment, there is the peace of the Spirit that is given to the Savior. Peace. The the Spirit here points to peace. The Spirit The third person of the Trinity that we refer to, the personal presence of the kingdom, comes down like a dove to declare to us, upon this one, God's anointed king, peace will come. Now, if you were standing there, imagine standing there in that moment. You're gathered. John's been baptizing people all day, and now Jesus comes. There's this awkward moment. He's plunged under, and all of a sudden you go, ooh. Something in the atmosphere just changed. It's as though someone is watching us. It is as though there's a weight now. Someone else is here. And it is the Spirit of God that hovered at the beginning of creation. If we go back to Genesis 1, the Spirit is hovering over the the world that He's going to create before He creates it. And here the Spirit is hovering over Jesus. And here there is ushering in a new creation. But it is a creation that will bring forth peace. And the Spirit that anoints Jesus is the same Spirit we see in the Old Testament that anoints the judges and anoints the kings. And why are these men anointed by the Spirit? To destroy the enemies of God and bring forth peace for the people of God. And so the Spirit is a sign of peace. But we also have to understand to bring peace, there has to be war. And here this one Messiah King, warrior King, is anointed with the Spirit of God to go to war on the cross and die for our sins, to go go to war with death and, and to be resurrected and to bring life into a world cursed by death. He is going to war with for us to bring about our peace. And, and if this is the one that God has anointed to bring about peace and He does so with war, what the Spirit of God would call you to do in this moment is to make peace with Him. Because right now you're at war with him. By nature, you're at war with this king. Because we wake up every day and we want to live for ourselves. But the world is created and ordered 
to be about Jesus and His glory. But we want it to be about me. And, and we, we are at war with God. And if we do not repent of our sin, He will make peace with us by wiping us out. And He calls here by the Spirit of God to submit and make peace with God, to bow before His anointed King, to stop fighting with Him because He has come to stop the fight with you by dying on the cross for your sin, enduring the hostility for your sin so that you would know tranquility, so that you would know shalom. But you have to bow before Him as your Prince of Peace first. It's not all about your schedule, your goals, your dreams, and you just tack God on. No, your life has to be about Jesus first and foremost. We've sung it today. That it would be centered on Jesus. I hope when you were singing that, you were fighting to make that so in your heart. And even as you sing that, you feel it's not just a catchy tune. But there's war raging in my gut because I don't want Jesus to be the center. But here, by the power of the Spirit, you can bow before the Prince of Peace, the one that the Spirit says is God's King, and you can have peace. Stop fighting with Him. But notice verse 11. We have good news from the Father. A voice came from heaven. Can you imagine that moment? There is the peace of the Spirit. And then the thundering earth-shattering voice of God thunders in. And there's some debate if the folks around could hear this, but we do know that Jesus heard it. Jesus looks to the heaven and He receives the words of the Father. Notice, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Father says to the Son, who is anointed by the Spirit, who has said, I will identify with my people, I have set my love upon you. You are loved, and with you I am well pleased. Meaning, all of my plans revolve around you. I, I take great delight and pleasure to make you the centerpiece of the universe. And I'm going to give you everything. Remember, Son of God refers to Jesus as not just His Sonship, but He is heir. He is firstborn. He gets it all. And here the Father says, I'm going to give it all to you because I delight in you. And it is my pleasure to give you everything. And so, it's almost as if in the water here the world stops. And the Son... The Spirit and the Father, they have a moment on planet Earth together. And what are they declaring to us? The Gospel. The Godhead delighting in one another is good news for you. They are here to execute a plan that brings you peace and the one who would bow before the king who has come, the one the Spirit says is the Son, the one the Son says, I've come to identify with you, the one who would confess these things are true. Jesus says, I will give you this Spirit because I will give you this kingdom. And in having this Spirit in the Son, you hear the same word that was spoken to Jesus in the Jordan River. And so it goes from being this moment with the Godhead that if you believe in the Son... You are immersed into the fellowship of the Godhead, of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are brought into that moment of the gospel when you believe in the Son who's identified with your sin. 
When you confess Jesus as your King, Prince of Peace, you receive the Spirit, you get the same word from the Father. Can you imagine hearing, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased? Can you imagine that? What must it have been like? Well, if you're a Christian here today, you don't have to imagine it. Because in the gospel, you've heard it. Because if you believe in Jesus, the reality of the gospel is God has set his love upon you and he is well pleased with you today. How would your life change if you really believe that? Yeah, I'm following Jesus. Yeah, I've trusted in Jesus. I have the spirit of God within me. But do you live under the earth shaking voice? You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. You are my child in whom I'm well pleased. I love you and I can't wait to give you everything. That is a voice given to the Christian who believes in Jesus. Why is that? It's because Jesus endured all that would anger, irritate, and frustrate the Father with you so that you would enjoy all that causes the Father to love the Son. Think about that. Because some of us in our sin, we imagine that God's just sort of putting up with us until we get to heaven. He's really irritated with us right now. But when we get to heaven, he's going to fix us and he'll like us then. Oh, if you're in Christ, that's a lie. He delights in you in this moment. Some of you are here today and you're worried about your past. That thing you did that night, those things you said, the way you acted in that way. And you're worried God might find those things out and cancel me. Like he, if he finds that out, it's, we're done for. God knows it better than you know it. Jesus died for it. He loves you. He's not angry with you. He's not irritated with you. In this moment, even in light of your past, he has set his love upon you and you are well pleasing to the Father in Christ. Believe that. This is real. This is the gospel truth. And it transforms your life when you embrace it. Some of you believe today that God is withholding from you. That there's something He's not giving you just yet. Because He's really trying to figure out, is this going to work out? No, God knows your past and He knows your present. And He knew you'd be high maintenance. He knew it. You're the one who's finding out how sinful you are. God already knew it, and He loved you anyway. You're the one when you read your Bible and you go, whoa, I'm really, really selfish. When you're called to take up your cross and follow Jesus, and you're like, no way. When you're called to sacrificially serve others, when you're called to die, to no way. God knew you were going to struggle with that, and He loved you anyway. And the Spirit is leading you to the joy of those moments. God knew you would reject that at times. He knew you would be blind to your sin. He knew you would flirt with carnality. He knew you would see the pleasures of this world as more fun than the kingdom that's coming. And He's not going to change His mind about you. Because He will not change His mind about Jesus. And in Jesus, He is committed to you forever. But notice we have the word from the son, word from the father, word from the spirit. And notice where it leads Jesus in verse 12. We would think, okay, they've had the moment. Jesus is the son. He's going to get the kingdom. 
Just give it to Him right now. Like you've already said how special He is. You've already said it. Give Him the kingdom. Give it to Him now. Let's set up shop. Let's rule and reign. Notice what verse 12 says. The Spirit immediately drove Him out into the wilderness. So you have this special ah moment with God. And we think we're... We think it's happily ever after. And then the Spirit, the text says, immediately drove him. The word means he was jerked out into the wilderness. He was driven like a, like a cow out into the wilderness being prodded. It, the same word is used here of casting out demons, where demons have infected someone's body and they are raging in, some bo- in someone's body and Jesus speaks and they are violently taken out of that person. Jesus is vital- violently taken out to the wilderness. And it's a place that's desolate. It's a place that's dead. It is to remind us of the curse of sin, the thorns and thistles of Genesis 3. And we see this Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Here He has become the scapegoat who goes out of the camp, away from Jerusalem. And notice how long he was there. He was there 40 days. This is to remind us, Noah's flood, 40 days. Israel in the wilderness, 40 days. And Jesus heads out into the wilderness for 40 days. And notice he is tested in every way. He is tempted. The word tempted means tested. He is put on trial as God's son. By who? Satan. Now, the word for Satan means to accuse or he's an adversary and it means to question. And so Jesus is put on trial before Satan out in the wilderness. And from other gospel writers, what does Satan ask Jesus? If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, jump off of this building and see if he'll save you. If you are the Son of God, bow down and worship me and you'll get it all. What is, what is being questioned there? The word he just heard from the Father. I love you and I can't wait to give you everything. That is what is being... Is that true? Jesus is being tested to see if he believes the word of the Father here. Do you believe in the wilderness, this desolate place, this dead place full of thorns and thistles that the Father will take care of you? And notice, and he was with wild animals and angels were ministering to him. And Mark's the only one who kind of throws that in there and we're asking why. What's to take us back to Genesis when Adam is with the animals in the beginning and he has total control over the animals. He's naming them. But then the curse comes into the world and everything's wild. Everything's chaotic. And here Jesus is in a wilderness full of wild animals. And at night there were no street lamps for Jesus. He would have laid his head on dirt. And he would not have known what was around him. And every now and then Jesus would wake up in the middle of the night and there would have been a wild animal smelling him. And the question for him in that moment is, does God love me? Does the Father love me and will He take care of me? And we see the answer to that. God sent His angels to protect Jesus. It's not as though Jesus were out in the wilderness with Superman powers and He's zapping wild angels or wild animals. It is God takes care of Him the same way He takes care of us with the promise. 
I love you and I will take care of you as long as you need to be taken care of. And for the Christian, that's forever. And that's what's going on with Jesus. God is taking care of him. And we see Jesus walking out into the wilderness that Adam created. Remember in the garden, Adam did not believe the father's good pleasure. Adam, think about Adam. In the garden, he is surrounded by God's goodness. In the Garden of Eden, Adam, when he inhaled, he tasted God's goodness and pleasure. It was all around. So why would Adam not believe God loved him? Why would Adam not embrace the commands of God there and trust God in the garden? Adam disobeyed and so he is cast out into the wilderness, a place of thorns and thistles where he has to work. Adam did not believe the promise, but we see here Jesus is believing the promise. Adam bowed to the serpent. Jesus crushed the serpent's head. And he's creating a new garden here in the wilderness, a place that will bring forth life for us. Israel, they march out into the wilderness. And what was their problem in the wilderness? They did not believe God loved them and was taking them to a better place. And so what were they constantly saying? I wish we were back in Egypt. We're out here in the wilderness and we're eating manna and we have this idiot Moses. He's trying to lead us to this better place. I don't believe it's true. We don't believe the promise. We would rather eat Pharaoh's diet than manna. Sure, the chains were bad and, you know, somewhat restricting. But Egypt was better. They didn't believe the promise of something better. But here Jesus moves through the wilderness And we're going to see in Mark, he moves through the wilderness of this world as the son of God who clings to this promise. The father loves me and the father has good pleasure upon me and his desire is to give me everything. And we're going to see Jesus not just go to the wilderness. He's going to go to a cross and he's going to hang on a cross, suffocating, drowning in his own blood. And yet still believing the father loves him and will raise him up three days later. Jesus believes the promise to the very end, even through a crucifixion, to a resurrection, to an ascended kingdom that he's going to give us. And so that's spiritual warfare. See, we often think about spiritual warfare as going into places with some special water and saying some special prayers and casting out some things that we don't even know are true or what. No, spiritual warfare is you as a Christian having the good news of Jesus Christ and living like you believe it and clinging to clinging to it no matter what. No matter what demons are soaring around that you can't see, you're going to cling to the gospel, which is exactly what Jesus does here. But see, we're in a better place than Adam. We're in a better place than Israel because we stand on the other side of a smoldering cross soaked with blood. And there is no way you can doubt if God loves you. We stand on the other side of a resurrection that declares God is pleased with you. And in Jesus, he's going to raise you up too. the promise is true and we can see it and we know it. But we also know today that this wilderness is very real. Folks in our church who have been diagnosed with cancer, I walked up to you today and said, those test results aren't real. They're just kind of make-believe fake. You'd go find another pastor. You'd say you're an idiot. 
Because I'm the one that lays awake at night crying over these things. If I walked up to some of you today and said the depression that you're struggling with, it's not real. It's not real. It's fake. You would hate my guts because you know it's real. It's not make-believe. You don't live in a haunted house. These things are true. These things are real. And the point is, so is the gospel. The gospel is even more real than your wilderness. And you will learn that for thousands of years. But will you believe it tomorrow? You see, you're going to wake up tomorrow and your sin is going to indict you. It's going to be hard for you to get past your sin tomorrow. And you're going to think, I got to work. I got to work more. Got to get more involved in church. I got to post more pictures on Instagram of me and my body. I got to cover this sin up. You're going to work harder. But as your sin indicts you, the Savior has identified with you to deliver you. He has become sin in your place so that in Him you might become the righteousness of God. So the question tomorrow is when your sin indicts you, will you believe the Savior who's identified with you? Tomorrow it's going to be a struggle to live in a world haunted by death. We live in a world where we know the life of the kingdom to come, but we're haunted We're in a place haunted with death all around. And it gets really confusing about what's real. It gets really confusing about what to believe. And sometimes sickness feels like God's judgment. Sometimes you lose your job and it feels like God is judging you. Because you're at war with these two kingdoms and you're at war with God's word and Satan's word and the word of sin and the word of death. And you're confused and you're in this chaos, but you are to embrace the reality of the spirit who has come to bring you peace. And you are to believe this tomorrow as you walk through this wilderness. And it's really hard and it's really difficult as you move through the difficult of the wilderness where Jesus has already gone for you. You are to believe without a shadow of a doubt that the spirit is not taking you away from the Father, the Spirit is taking you to the Father. And you are to cling with that with all of your might. Because this world of death will tell you differently. And tomorrow, Satan will accuse you of your sin. And for some of you here today, he's going to say things like this. How could you listen to that guy talk about God's love and believe it was true for you? Yeah, there are other people at church that they got it together, but not you. God doesn't love you. When is the last time someone has told you they love you? Your your dad wouldn't even tell you he loves you. Your boss won't even tell you that he's thankful of you and proud of you. How, How could anyone think well of you? And Satan is going to remind you of your sin and say, there is no way God could love you. And some of you, in light of that, you work so hard to impress others. You're working so hard to make others love you because you ultimately don't believe God loves you. I've got good news for you today. God couldn't be more happy with you. Look at me and believe that. I don't know how else to say it in this moment. I can't make you believe it. But, but hear it. Hear it. God loves Jesus more than anything. 
Jesus is the Son of God who He loves and delights in. And He is going to give it all to Him. And if you are in Jesus, the same is true for you. You can walk out to your car today, get in there, look in the rearview mirror and say, God loves you. Some of you need to say that to yourself and believe it. How would your life change? How would your relationship with others change if you just believed God's not irritated with you? You, you really believe he's, he's irritated with you and He's just enduring you until He can get you to heaven. It's not true if you're in Christ. He loves you in this very moment. You are a beloved son. In the son, you are a beloved child. And He can't wait. He is on edge. He is on edge anticipating the moment that He can give you the kingdom. It is His good pleasure to tell you that today. The only question is, will you believe it in the wilderness that you're walking through? Will you stop? Walking down the hall tomorrow and the bad news comes. Go to the mirror and say, God loves you. The gospel is true. We're going to get through it. The promise is real. We're not being set up. We're being loved. And the day's coming where we will run from this haunted wilderness. And we won't run to a locked car. We will run to the open arms of a father. And he's not going to say to us, there was really nothing to be scared of. And we're going to look back and say, no, those demons are real. Sin's real. Death's real. But so is the Savior we will serve forever.